<laughs> of course we should have fun in church. This should be the place where we should have a lot of fun, right? All right, before I forget, I was looking at this this morning. I noticed this little tear-out uh, thing. It says guest information on one side, prayer request, prayers report on the other. I have no idea what happens to these yet. I haven't been here long enough to figure that kind of stuff out. However, this is an important thing to me. This is an important piece of information. And so we have to figure out ways, structures, for everyone in the congregation to share uh, praises, prayer requests, things that are going on in their life. And so get used to using this. So tear it off and give it to an usher, give it to me, give it to Jude, put it on my desk, put it in the offering basket, wherever it goes. I don't even know. You guys know how to get it there. And start, start feeding back to us what's going on in the life of the congregation, things that we can pray for, things that you want to tell us about, struggles that you have. Maybe you don't know what you think about this whole Jesus character and you want to talk about Jesus. By the way, that's what we're going to talk about at the amphitheater. Is uh, When we get there, Mark and I have been working on a theme called uh, Hidden Identity. Who is this Jesus? He, he has been co-opted by the media and the world, and we want to grab him and take him back. And we're going to talk each Sunday about who is this Jesus that we serve. And everybody that comes, we're going to invite to go on this journey with us about Jesus. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm proud to be a Christian, and I know who Jesus is. And there's a lot of people that think they know who Jesus is, but they don't really. So we're going to explore some of those. So take some time and get used to giving us information on wherever you are in life. We would love to have it. All right, two weeks ago, I started a uh, series, what I called The Brave New World. And um, you probably get used to me walking back and forth across the stage. And so you have Genesis and beyond on this end. And you have uh, Revelation down at this end and the, the eternal state and the new earth down at this end. And uh, when you look at the Bible, the Bible just has so much information in it. It's just breathtaking. If you're uh, sitting on an airplane... And um, you're going to hear me use this metaphor more than once, so get used to it. And the person next to you is reading a book, and you say, what kind of book is that? What's that book about? And they'll say, oh, it's a mystery, or it's a, it's a history of Western civilization, or it's a book on piano theory. I don't know. You could usually identify what book you're reading. But you have your Bible laying there, and they say to you, well, what's that book about? How do you answer that question? What's that book about? I found that most Christians don't have a good handle, a good idea on how to take this whole thing and put it into one idea. Because there's so much stuff in it, right? Stuff we're comfortable with, stuff we're uncomfortable with, stuff that makes us laugh, stuff that makes us cry, stuff that makes us uh, smile, stuff that makes us frustrated, right? Well, here's my answer to the question. This book is about the one true living God who has expressed himself in his son Jesus, who cares so much about this creation that he interacts with it in such a way that all of his creation will worship him alone as God. All of it. That means in the middle of all of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our, our nastiness, he's present, he's involved, he's engaged. The best way to capture that is to continue to look at the grand scheme from the tragedy in the garden to the triumph of eternity. From the devastation that came about because two people ate the wrong fruit. By the way, you would have done the same had you been there. So don't need to blame them. I would have done the same. 
from that tragedy, there's no way to overstate how devastating that was to the final reconciliation of all things where we get to live in a world that's wonderful, where the fallenness is taken care of. The Bible is an optimistic book, and therefore I'm an optimistic theologian. The good guys always win in the Bible. That's the story. And so we, we started this idea, I called a brave new world, that once this tragedy occurred, then God, he could have done nothing. And we would be hopelessly lost. But he begins just very gradually shining a penlight into the darkness. And as the Bible unfolds and we see God's movement in history, what we discover is that that light gets brighter and brighter. In fact, the very first day at the amphitheater, we're going to talk about John 1. And a light came into the world. That's Jesus. When the light shines, some things happen. One is we capture a real glimpse of who God is. And we see that we're not alone. We understand that he is there for our benefit. He loves us. You've heard me say several times already that we're the centerpiece of creation. Everything we see is made for us, for our enjoyment. He didn't need it. He wanted to display his amazing creative abilities so that we would laugh and smile and play. And this is the perfect county to live in for people that love that. Everybody I talk to, they ski, they bike, they ride, they hike, they walk, they camp, they they do everything up here. It's an amazing thing. That's a good thing. That reflects on the glory of the Lord. By the way, if you're not sure how to share Jesus with your friends, you live in the perfect environment. Psalm 19, the heavens shout the glory of God. If you're not sure what to say, take him on a hike. Let God do his shouting. He's good at it. Far better than I am. But we see this. We see this light coming in as you move through history. Brighter and brighter and brighter. Ultimately, we see it in the expression of Jesus, the Son of God, God himself. And everything begins to look clear. But along the way, there's all this really nasty stuff. I, I've, one of the metaphors I have liked to use is that of a tapestry. I've never created one. I've only seen them. But on the back side, they're not near as pretty as they are on the front side. It seems like you have lots of kind of extra threads hanging out and colors that somehow don't look quite the same. And when you turn it over and you see the other side, you see how beautiful it is. We have the privilege of living on the backside of that. That's what we see. What the Bible does is it gives us a glimpse from time to time of what the other side looks like. Just enough so that we see the hope. We feel it. We express it. We relate to each other with that sense of hope. That's what we're about. When my children leave home to go to college or to leave home, maybe not college, all four of them, I sat him down and had a conversation with him and said, you know, next week you're, uh, you're not going to be, I won't be there with you to help you make decisions. But that's okay, you're ready for it. So let me give you some fatherly advice, some words of wisdom. Uh, using the metaphor of a dance, you're going to have to learn what it means to dance with the Lord. Because up until now, you don't really know that because you're still at home. And, and you know, God doesn't, tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, what are you doing? He does that to me, and that's my job to do it to you. But starting next week, you'll be experiencing that yourself. Don't be afraid of the Lord. Enjoy it. Have fun. Go out and try things. Faith, by the way, is a definition and risk, not security. And so as a church, I think we have often misled people. If we're not sure, don't do it. I have the opposite mentality. If we're not sure, try it. The Lord is a big God. He knows exactly 
have to get our attention. He vented with me. So I told my children that, and they're like, is this my dad? <laughs> Don't be afraid. Try it. When you get on the dance floor, there'll be some days you'll be dancing with the Lord, and you wonder how in the world it could be anything ever less than perfect. You ever had those moments where it's just fantastic with God? Your heart's full. You feel secure. You feel safe. You wonder how you could ever doubt. You know what I'm talking about? Those grand moments, they come from time to time. Then all of a sudden you get on the floor one day and you're bumping knees and stepping on each other's toes and you don't know who's leading, you or God, and, and you find yourself kind of at odds with him and, and uncomfortable in the relationship. Then there are other days you get on the dance floor and, and you feel all alone. Where in the world did he go? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all normal. That's part of living in a broken world. He's actually there. He's just hiding in the shadows, smiling. Sometimes you got to let the two-year-old learn to walk and fall, or the year and a half, or the one-year-old, and trip. He's still God, and I'm so glad that he is and I'm not. And that's kind of what life is like. And so we live in this world where one day it's perfect, another day it's, and we're not sure, another day it's hard, and we're back and forth, right? And what the Bible does is it gives us a glimpse on the other side. It gives us a glimpse from God's perspective of how he views this brokenness and what he is doing about it every step of the way. We tend to think of the Bible as a rule book for life and all of that, and it does. It does have rules in it we should follow, but that's the, by far, that's the minority. What the Bible typically does and what it's God designed it to do is as we experience life, I think it was Jim Dobson that said values can't be taught to your children. They can only be caught by them. Well, that's true in life. How can the Bible possibly teach us what a fantastic relationship with a spouse is like? Unless you experience it. So what the Bible does is we're living life. It comes alongside and it validates and it interprets our experience. Otherwise, how would we know? How would we make sense of the world around us? And it's a wonderful thing. So this book is fantastic because it gives us a, a glimpse from God's perspective, often looking down into this broken world of what he's doing about it, why he lets some things go, why he fixes some things, why he waits, why sometimes he says no, why sometimes he says yes right away, sometimes he says yes 20, 40 years later. 50 years later, 60 years, I mean, Moses, right? God told him he's going to lead his people out, and it was 40 years later before he got to do that. And that's part of life. So that's what we've been talking about, is this kingdom, as it emerges into this world, there's this world within a world. There's a culture within a culture. There's this kingdom of the redeemed that are slowly rising up. That's us. And as we feel comfortable and confident in the Lord's leading... And as we feel safe to fail, by the way, every one of us needs to be able to fail. We do. That's part of it. Best thing we can do is let each other fail and learn from it. As long as there are two things present. One is that um, you have confidence that grace will be extended. And number two, the lessons that you learn will be worth it. Because it'll be hard to learn. Been there many times. That's what this journey is about. It is optimistic. I am optimistic. So the very first Sunday, we talked about your value. Use the image of the mountains and the homeless person. Remember that, how important you are? 
Last Sunday, we talked about uh, gender and celebrating our differences and our gender. By the way, I must have had 50 conversations this week with you. Thank you <laughs> for all the texts and emails and phone calls and visits and uh, face-to-face conversations. It was wonderful. I enjoy your inquisitiveness. And uh, you can obviously tell that I'm very high on women. I think they have a wonderful role, a wonderful place in the kingdom. Today I want to talk about ethnicity, something very different. So here's the question for you. When you get to this uh, wonderful place that we call the new earth, think of it as a new earth. My last class I taught at CCU many years ago, it's been about four or five years ago now, I had 40 students about the age of 18, and I asked them, how many of you are looking forward to heaven? Not one hand went up. And these are all Christians raised in Christian homes. Not one hand went up. And I knew that would be the answer. Um, if you ask our kids, I suspect you'll probably get a similar answer. Why not? Why aren't you looking forward to heaven? Well, as they begin to describe their view of heaven, you know what they found? You know what I found out? I found out that their thinking is that it's one eternal church service. <laughs> well, shoot me now and put me out of my misery. No, wait, because I don't want one eternal church service. No, 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 no. If this creation was made for us, and Peter and Paul and uh, John in Revelation, they talk about this new creation that's been refashioned. This is, I am created for this place. So think of it as a new earth. It's just more beautiful. The things that you like to do now, that you're made for, you'll get to redo them. Even better. It's a place where we will just enjoy. Um... Revelation talks about the nations coming and going out of the new city. Where do they go when they leave? Oh, we'll come back to that. Later date. Okay? But when you get down to here and you finally have arrived and you're going to arrive, what color are you going to be? What color? What language are you going to speak? That's an interesting set of questions, isn't it? Welcome to discussions of ethnicity. Revelation tells us several times, four or five times, that in the new Jerusalem, the new earth, every tribe, every nation, every people, every language is present. The nations are all there. Every people group is there. So whatever color you are right now, that's what you're going to be, I think. Whatever language you speak now, that's the language that you're going to speak. Now, theologians, we think of ethnic studies and racial studies a little different than sociologists and anthropologists. They talk in terms of races and racism. Theologians talk in terms of one human race. One human race made in the image of God. So if you were to take the very darkest person and line every human up, all the way down to the very lightest person, you still have only one human race. But within that grouping, within that large, vast human race, we have a lot of different ethnicities, people that are different. The people in Nepal are different than us. Why did God do that? Well, we have to figure that out, don't we? But from the beginning of the Bible, I think we will find that God envisioned a human race that was divided by ethnicity on purpose. That's part of his plan of redemption. 
Remember that we looked last week at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. Remember that verse? The very next sentence says uh, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay. Then at the end of chapter uh, Genesis chapter 9, with Noah, when he is taken off the ark, he repeats the command. Except he says, be fruitful, spread out on the earth and fill it. But here's what happened. I think you probably know the basic story of Babel. So now we're going to go back and we look at the Old Testament. Now, remember my thinking. The Old Testament often serves like a, a children's picture book. It gives us a tangible sense of reality. You can touch the stones at the temple. You can hear the animals bleeding or, or, uh, as they're on their way to the sacrifice. You can smell them as they're, being sacri- as they're being sacrificed. It gives us a very real world so that we can understand those same symbols in a true spiritual sense. So when we talk about it, we are... We are uh, sacrifices. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let's go back in the Old Testament and we learn a real simple principle. A sacrifice is never sacrificed on behalf of itself. A goat, a bull, is never sacrificed on behalf of itself. It's sacrificed to God on behalf of someone else, me. So now I'm a living sacrifice. I'm not sacrificed on behalf of my own self. What that means is I'm a sacrifice on your behalf. And you're a sacrifice on my behalf and vice versa. Remember that imagery? Okay, so now let's look at Babel because Babel gives us some very insightful information about what we're going to find repeated in the New Testament. You remember the basic story, I think. Uh, sin, the world just, you know, humanity just crumbles and the world collapses and everything you can think of in the way horrible sin begins to appear on the scene. And so you have the flood. Noah comes out of the flood. Genesis chapter 10, what we call the table of nations. God creates all the nations, all the different ethnic groups. So he made those people groups the way they were. So you should celebrate whatever your ethnic background is. That's a wonderful thing. But then he tells them to be fruitful, spread out on the earth and multiply. And what do they do? They do the opposite. They all gather together and they refuse to separate. So he does something that is, is supernatural and it is violent. He confuses their language. He uses linguistic separation to force them to move out into different parts of the world. Okay? That's not punitive. He did that because that was his plan. He told Noah, spread out on the earth. And they refused to do it. He said, okay, bing. Now you can't understand each other. I don't know what it's like one day to wake up with my good friend Rob and and he's speaking one language and I'm speaking another language. I have no idea what he's saying. That's how violent it was. Did it happen between marriages? I have no idea. All I know is one day they woke up and they couldn't understand each other. So they naturally moved into the people groups where they could understand each other. They scattered. That's what the Old Testament says. God scattered them through the use of language. And they began to move on. Okay. That's Genesis 10. He created the nations. Genesis 11. He scattered them at the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12. He does a very wonderful thing. Now, back in Genesis 10, if I can use an old metaphor, he creates, uh, here's God, he creates a kaleidoscope of nations, different colors, different ethnicities, different people groups that surround him. Then in Genesis 12, starting with Abraham, he chooses one to reach the rest. Turn with me to Genesis 12. It's a very, very, perhaps one of the most significant verses in the Bible, passages, the New Testament refers back to this constantly. Genesis 12, this is Abram, who later is renamed Abraham. 
Abram is a Gentile. He's a pagan. He worships many gods, Joshua tells us. He worships the stars. He's Chaldean. And um, uh, God didn't choose him because he was faithful. He didn't even know the Lord. Genesis 12, he hasn't even met the Lord yet. It's not until later that he believes in God. So Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, what would lead him to do that? Well, I don't know, but if I served a bunch of gods and one of them started speaking one day, I would probably, I would probably listen if, not, if I didn't faint. You know, I suspect, I can't prove it, but since he studied the stars uh, as a Chaldean, I suspect he was worshiping the stars and all of a sudden, voila, God starts speaking to him in his own language, in language he understood. And he says, go. And then he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whomever curses you, I will curse. Here it is. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So he created all the all the nations. He created a kaleidoscope. They stuck together. He kicked them out. They all scattered around the world. And then he chooses one and says, go get them. Go get the rest. By the way, we have examples that uh, the Israelites were faithful to some degree. We have Uriah the Hittite, Ruth the Moabite. Those are examples. Whenever you see that, then um, you know that somebody from outside the land of Israel had wandered and made their way to come to know the true living God, Yahweh. Okay? The Old Testament is full, full of examples of, that show us that God Uh, God's plan all along was to reach the entire world. He continues to claim ownership, for instance, over all the world and all the nations. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and everything in it and all the people. Psalm 24. He continues to uh, demonstrate his love for the foreigners, the non-Israelites living in the land. Jeremiah 22, Ezekiel 47. Remember, um, when you glean your fields, don't leave the corners ungleaned. So if there's poor or there's uh, marginalized people, or there's foreigners in the land, they have a place to come and eat for free. Take care of the foreigners. The Old Testament's full of language. Care for the foreigners if they make it their way. Why? Because he said, I will make you a holy nation. I will make you a priest, a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. So therefore, we want the rest of the world to come. So when they get here, take care of them. Bless them. Feed them. Tell them about me. The Psalms are full of language. Let all of Israel proclaim the name of Yahweh so that the nations will come. The temple was designed to be a, uh, an attraction. Every nation had a temple. Only ours had a living God in the middle of it. None of the others did. So the Old Testament is just replete with this information. God's choosing of Israel, his formation of Israel as a nation, was so that he could demonstrate his glory and spread his grace to all the nations. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9. Turn about to the middle of the Bible. If you hit Psalms, go right. It's a big book. You can't miss it. You can miss Zephaniah. It's hard to miss Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. It's on all of our Christmas cards. We're going to start in verse 1. Verse 2 is on all of our Christmas cards. Nevertheless, it's Isaiah chapter 9. One of the great prophets in Israel. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, of the Gentiles. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. 
See why that metaphor of light is such a good image? That as God begins to move in history, he begins to shine that light brighter and brighter and brighter. Look over with me in Isaiah 66. By the way, the Old Testament is filled with these verses. I just picked a couple. Isaiah 66, verse 18. We're at the end now. He's prophesying about what happens at the end. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all the nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some to those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece and the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. So, Genesis 10, he creates these nations, and he selects a kaleidoscope of nations, and he selects one and says, go get them. We still haven't answered the question of why did he do it this way. But you understand, the Old Testament is just replete with this image that God loves this entire world and everybody in it passionately. You should feel honored. You should feel delightful. Every morning when you get up, as hard as life can be, remind yourself that God is passionate about you. He built you for a purpose. Okay, so I mentioned Babel over here. And then what the prophet said now, look what happens when you move into the New Testament. You see what I call true spiritual Babel. I see Babel being repeated. And let's think about some of the ways that Babel is repeated. Back here, God said, spread out on the earth and fill it. Be fruitful and, what's the word? Multiply. Matthew 28, what does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of all the nations. It's the same imagery, isn't it? Go multiply. Back here, the people all gathered together, grouped themselves together. Here, they all stayed in Jerusalem. From, Acts, from Matthew 28 to Acts 1 is about uh, one year. I'm sorry, Acts 8. It's about one year long, and they're all together. They haven't gone out yet. Over here, God uses linguistic separation to create confusion. They can no longer understand each other. Over here, Acts 2 at Pentecost, you have this amazing gift called the gift of speaking in tongues. For the first time, they all understood each other. And the list of nations listed in Acts 2 shows that the known world was all present. Listening to Peter and the apostles uh, proclaim praises about this Yahweh, this one true God. And this amazing gift of tongues... They all sat there and says they weren't speaking their language. They were hearing, but they were understanding God being praised from these different languages. God did something really incredible. He eliminated the confusion related to this linguistic separation, but he didn't eliminate ethnic diversity. The Cappadocians were still the Cappadocians. Right? The Sumerians were still the Sumerians. It's an amazing thing that he did here. That gives us a glimpse into what's happening. We'll come back to that. Over here, God scattered the people all around the world. That same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament is used in Acts 8.1 at the stoning of Stephen. God scattered the church. Boom. They went out. Then, starting in Acts 8, we see the promise to Abraham start to be fulfilled. 
one after another of the ethnic groups begins to hear about Jesus. So Peter, I mean, uh, Philip goes to Samaria. Then he meets the Ethiopian. Peter goes to Cornelius, a Gentile. Paul goes to all the lands of Asia Minor, all the different cities, and finally over into Macedonia, into Greece, all the way to Rome and Italy. And so one ethnic group after another begins to turn to Jesus. And we see the promise to Abraham thousand years before, 1,500 years before, begin to happen. All these ethnic groups begin to hear. Still haven't answered the question, why have we? True spiritual babble. If this is the case, then this sheds light on what God originally intended when he said, be fruitful and multiply. Spread out on the earth and fill it. I think he's obviously talking about procreation, but I think he's talking about something more. I think this is the way he built us to share the knowledge of him with each other. We learn about God by living in life, living life together. We learn about God in very real and organic ways by being together and sharing the journey. And so from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis 1, when he talks about image bearing and male and female, the very next verse gives us a hint that ethnicity is part of that image bearing as well. I'm proud of my ethnicity as well as you should be. But you should be proud of every other ethnicity. We still haven't answered the question, why though? Why did God do it this way? I'll give you my thoughts. The Bible gives us lots of clues without really answering the question directly but it gives us enough information that we can figure it out. When I uh, meet Rob Schmidt, my good friend, both Caucasian males, he's a little younger than I am. I'm better looking than he is. You know, so there's kind of an even thing going on there. And, uh, <laughs> and we start talking. We start sharing one, with one another about our journeys. And you know what I learned? I learned some things about the Lord that I hadn't experienced before. I hadn't conceived of. Because his life is a little different than mine. And I realized just by hearing from one person that I'm not God, and I'm grateful for that. If I understood God perfectly, I'd be Jesus. I'm not. So therefore, I have a very, as Paul said, a very dim view. I see through a mirror darkly, dimly. At best, it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. But when I start listening to Rob and I realize that some of his experiences are similar to mine, I think, okay, I'm not alone in this world. But then I start hearing things that are different. My view of God begins to broaden. You follow that? Okay. And then I sit down with Annika. And I said, Annika, tell me your story. And I started hearing her story. And I've crossed a gender line. And you know what? The way she conceives of this one true living God is a little different than I do. Her experiences are a little different. And she makes it, she, as she explains it, I, my view of God begins to broaden even more. Then I get on a plane and I travel all the way across the world to Nepal. And uh, I sit with people for India, very different than me. I've crossed every line you can think of, socioeconomic, religious. I mean, there's nothing about our worlds that are the same. And I listen to their stories of the one true living God. And I'm talking about the one true living God. I'm not talking about Buddha or Allah. Let me be clear on that. We're talking about Yahweh, who's expressed himself in Jesus. And I began to see that they have a whole different way of conceiving of who God is. We have some overlap. And we have difference. And in that difference, my view of God just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I begin to learn more and more and more about God. You with me? I'll give you an example. 
I'm talking to the Indian students a few years back now, and I'm preaching out of Ephesians. There's one God, one mediator, the man Jesus Christ, one baptism, one Lord, you know, that passage. You know, being the, the trained one, the educated one, I make the, the good statement that, see, this is a model for what unity is like, and all my students start to laugh. And I say, okay, what did I just say? What happened? And they say, sir, sir, we don't think you understand the passage. <laughs> okay, enlighten me. You know, and they said, uh, we serve 330 million gods in our culture in Hinduism. The moment you have two, you can't be unified. You can only be unified if you have one God. This is a statement of praise that we only have to worry about one God. And it's like, wow, I never even conceived of that. I don't live in a land where we have 330 million gods. I, I grew. I learned something about them. Okay. I think that's why God did it. Because every nation has their own way of living life and their own language and sets of terms. The Hebrew language in the Old Testament, 20-something words to describe dancing and praise, and they only have one word that talks about mind, heart, and soul. What's important to the Israelites? Dancing, praising. You learn a lot about people by looking at their language. From those of you that have studied other languages, you know what I mean. So all the different languages can, can conceive of these same ideas differently. So here we have God with all these nations, different ethnic groups, all experiencing the same one true living God who is infinite, but reporting back to the rest of us with different ideas of what he's like. And we begin to, our view of God broadens. Here's what that means. God cannot be fully known until both genders and every ethnic group is heard from. Everybody has a voice. What that means is it's not going to happen on this earth. We just start the journey. In fact, I'm not sure we'll ever get there. I think that's part of the eternal journey is that we will be learning about God for all of eternity from each other. Wow, you know what happened to me today? <laughs> so one day I'm part of that nation that goes out and you may be that back there worshiping Jesus. And then maybe uh, some of us go up to the mountains and we say, look at this. And we go back in and you, the rest of you go out. Jesus, how'd you make that? And then he teaches me, oh, here's how I did it. Let me show you. And then I get to tell the rest of you. And then the next day, you tell us what you learned. And as each of us experience the Lord in unique ways, our view of God is more holistic, it's more three-dimensional, it's more real. Ethnicity is important. It's critical. It's critical to our life journey. I'm so thankful to live at a time in history when theologians are rising up from other countries. I now have a... I, I have a commentary on the Bible written by African theologians. I've encouraged the ones in Nepal to write their own commentary. Teach me. Let me learn. Help me understand things that I can't see because I'm blind, blinded by my own culture. Because our view of God broadens. All right. I think that's the answer. Why? That means that there, from my perspective, two significant implications to this. One, I already told you. God cannot be fully known until every ethnic group is heard from. We need to listen. Pay attention. The second one, the first one is God cannot be fully known. The second one is God cannot be fully experienced until we act as priests and sacrifices in each other's lives. And I've already introduced that idea to you. I learn about God by listening to you. I experience God by experiencing you in a very real way. I can't tell you how thankful Nancy and I are 
this past week. They moved us up here. How many of you have knocked on the door? Nancy finally hung a note outside. Just come on in, quit ringing the doorbell. <laughs> the food that's come, I'm trying to desperately to get rid of it. <laughs> so much of it, the cookies, all that kind of good stuff. Just the generosity of people to come over and unpack boxes and move furniture around and hook up things. And we're so grateful for that. I experience the risen Lord Jesus through your generosity and sacrifice. You know what I mean, don't you? You understand that? That's what community life is about. We don't know on any given day where the Holy Spirit is going to show up and what it's going to look like. That's why he's like the, the wind. The word for spirit is the same word for wind in both Hebrew and Greek. That's the Holy Spirit. We don't know. But this I do know, that in any group, some days there are going to be some of us that are overflowing with, with, with that joy, that wonderful feel, uh, feeling of fullness, that grace. We have it to give. It's overflowing. It's abundant. Some of the others of us are very needy. Maybe we just lost someone close to us. Maybe we just find out we're going to lose our job or we lost our job. Maybe we found out we have cancer or some kind of terminal illness. I've been through some of that. You've been through that. And so in any given group, when you wake up in the day, some of you have a need for grace. And others of us have an abundance to give. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. And so the more we communicate and the more we live in community together, in relationship, authentic, healthy relationship, then the, then the, the better we're able to, to, to dispense that grace in wonderful ways. Isn't that a great model? I'm glad the Lord made me to need you. I get lonely when I'm by myself. I want to belong to, I want to, belong to a, a congregation that's alive. That's why I said, fill these things out. Let's start communicating. Let's start finding out. I envision at some point, I want people up here sharing, the pra- sharing praises, sharing needs of what God has done. Our invitation to have people come forward. I want people to come forward for any number of reasons. Maybe they have a praise to share. Maybe they have something they desperately need physically. Maybe they need just prayer. Maybe they don't understand who this Jesus is and want to talk about Jesus. They're trying to figure it out. Maybe they're just confused. It doesn't matter what the reason does it. If we, if we, if we create this, continue to create this live, living, thriving congregation and we invite people into it, how would the world turn us away? I told you at your very worst, you still reflect the image of God better than anything in creation. That's true for every person out there in their most fallen state. I've already met some pretty vile people. <laughs> there are some up here. I didn't think there were, but there are. They still reflect the image of the Lord better than creation does. They're still worthy of our love and respect and our appreciation and our care for them. So, when we use the word diversity in today's world, it has a lot of political connotations now. So I would suggest we think in terms of difference. Instead of a theology of diversity, what about a theology of difference? Every one of us is different from one another. And what does it look like to enjoy that and to celebrate that and to go on a quest to find out? Because where you're different is where I'm going to learn about the Lord. So let's celebrate difference. Let's celebrate the different journeys that we have. Some of you were saved from something, something terrible, a life of drugs, a life of immorality, I don't know. And some of you were privileged to avoid something. 
through your salvation process. Both are equal and both are supernatural and both are just as powerful because we serve the risen Lord Jesus. I'm grateful for those of you that managed to avoid some of the more tragic things of life. I'm grateful for that. Let's learn about each other. Let's figure out this difference. And you know what? Our view of God begins to broaden and we begin to love him more deeply. God cannot be fully known until both genders and every ethnic group has spoken. Let's figure out the differences that we have between us and enjoy them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us different. There was a time when that frightened me. Um, There was a time when that made me hesitant and nervous and shied away from people different than me. And I have since grown to see that that was part of your creative design. You love creativity. You love making a creation that is so diverse in every way we can measure. And you did the same with us. Help us, Father, as a congregation to continue to celebrate difference, to enjoy one another, and to look at the people of this world who so desperately need your love as wonderful, wonderful people. Thank you, God, for blessing us so richly. In Jesus' name, amen.